We've been working through a series on First Peter that we've called Hope for Exiles. And what we're learning is that Peter is addressing the church and he's kind of given us a new frame of reference for how we see ourselves. And that is, we see ourselves as people who do not fit into this world, that we are actually exiles. Some translations would say sojourners and strangers in the world. So he helps us reframe how we think about our lives and how we think about our hope and that our hope isn't in politicians. Our hope isn't in things going exactly according to our plan. Our hope isn't having everything like perfect exactly the way we want it. Our hope isn't having certain changes come about in our lives. Our hope is ultimately in the God who has come to save us in the truth that Jesus reigns and that one day he will do away with all sin for good. So as we step into 1 Peter this morning, I wanna ask you, does the Bible ever make you cringe? Does it ever make you wince a little bit? Or you read it and you think, man, this is kind of hard or confusing or I don't really know how this fits in and is relevant to our culture today. Well, today is one of those texts that on first reading is kind of difficult. To our modern 21st century ears, it's kind of, this comes across as heavy, as out of touch, but it's in the Bible. It's in the pages of Holy Scripture, so we best pay attention to it and ask ourselves, well, what does this mean for us? And I think what we are going to find is that the hope of the gospel, what we're going to learn is that the hope of the good news of the gospel empowers a life of self-sacrificial service. That the hope that we have in God empowers a life that gives ourselves freely for others. So, Peter is gonna dive into the marriage relationship. And we're gonna see that it's something, what he says doesn't just affect marriage, well, it does, but it affects every kind of relationship we have on this side of eternity. So with that, would you turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter three. We're gonna be looking at the first seven verses. I'll read it and I'll respond with the word of the Lord and you'll say thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothing, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy woman who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You've become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. So as we work through our sermon this morning, um, three like handholds. The first is for the wives, for the wives. 
It's easy to look at this text and think, man, what is Peter doing? Why does he seem to put down women? This seems kind of patriarchal, like it was meant for a bygone era. But before we jump to those conclusions about Peter, I think it's necessary that we kind of see these verses within its structure, within its context, so that we can see what he's doing. And if you looked at chapter 2, you would see that Peter is addressing all kinds of groups, and he makes a broad summary statement in verse 13, where he says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. What Peter's been doing all throughout chapter 2 and now into chapter 3 is addressing various relationships. He's addressed slaves and how they are to relate to their masters. He addresses all of us and how we are to relate to authority. And just to be clear about slavery in the Bible, it's different than chattel slavery in the United States. This is still wrong. But now Peter is addressing women. And this is significant. Because at the time of this writing, it, you know, very shortly after uh, Christ ascended to heaven, um, women were not addressed in writing. They were not specifically spoken to in writing. In Jewish culture at the time, treated women as inferior to men. And in larger Greco-Roman culture, oftentimes women were inferior to men. It kind of depended on where you live. But now here, Peter is speaking directly to them. In fact, he's speaking directly to them before he speaks to husbands, before he speaks to men. So what Peter is actually doing in this text, brothers and sisters, is he is elevating the position of women in, in society. He is lifting them up. It's easy to read this stuff and think, well, man, it kind of seems like he's putting them down. Well, in society, they wouldn't have even been addressed. And here in the pages of Holy Scripture, we have Peter saying, no, I'm going to talk directly to the women now. He is elevating their status, which is what Christianity has done since the time of Christ. Whenever some of, his, some of the people who followed Jesus closest were Mary or women. Some of the, the first people who actually heard about the good news of the resurrection were women. So what we have here is, as we step back into the text is Peter honoring them and pulling them up as equals before the eyes of God. So this is not some patriarchal, heavy-handed thing. Peter is actually seeing them and addressing them. But he's also writing to a really specific situation. And that situation is this. There are women in that church that Peter was writing to who are following Jesus and their husbands are not. And likewise, there are men in the church following Jesus whose wives are not. And what Peter is giving is he's giving some direction. He's giving some guidance, some divine counsel for how we are to relate to one another. So he gives three, he gives more than three, but he basically gives three general principles for how wives are to relate to their unbelieving husbands. And the first thing he says to do is to submit graciously. Look at verse one, right at the beginning. He says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. Now, submit isn't a very attractive word in our culture. But it's used all throughout the pages of Scripture, and it's used more than once in Peter. 
kind of over and over and over again. And now, like I said, Peter is kind of giving wives instructions for how they are to relate to their unbelieving husbands. And Peter is really concerned with the order of the day, with how society is structured. And what he is kind of, what he is directly calling them to is to live in a way that is respectful to them. You see, in this time, if a woman chose a different faith than her husband, it would be really upsetting. It could actually cost the husband job promotions. It could, he could lose social standing in society. And what Peter is doing is he is recognizing the cost, the familial cost of her following Jesus. And he's saying, now to submit to his leadership, it's not gonna look like it should. It's gonna be messy, but I want you to respect who he is in your life. He is saying to be sensitive towards that. See, Peter is given instructions for how to maintain relationship in a divided home. Now, I wanna take a moment and say a couple different things on what this text is not saying. Because if I'm honest, this verse, these verses in Peter have been misused throughout the history of Christianity by some awful people trying to be controlling and manipulative. This verse, this verses, these verses have been used by misogynists to justify controlling abusive and harmful behavior. So let me be really, really clear about several things. Here's what the text is not saying. This text is not saying that women have to be generally submissive to all men. Okay, that's not what it's saying. I have heard this text used in that way, that women are to be submissive to men generally. That's not what it says. Look at what it says right in verse one. It says, in the same way, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands, not men generally. Okay, it's not, not what Peter's saying. First, secondly, it is not saying that they need to submit to abusive men. This is not calling for submission to verbally, spiritually, physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive men. If you're in that kind of relationship, get help. If you're unsafe, talk to someone and get safe right away. Not what the text is calling us to. It's also not for disobeying God, right? The Women weren't supposed to go against the commands of God because of, because of their husband's authority. That's not, that's not what it's saying. So it's not for disobeying God. But here's what it is. It means to honor her husband, even if he doesn't know Jesus by respecting his leadership in the home. It's to honor that position. Look at verse one. This is why. So that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. What is the reason for the submission? What is the purpose for the wives submitting to their unbelieving husband? Well, the purpose is so that he could come to know Jesus. The marriage serves the mission. In whatever relationships we're in, we'll get to this later, serve the mission. And Peter is giving these commands because the mission of God is so important and the hope that we have in the gospel 
empowers us to live a life of self-sacrificial service to the glory of God. Man, I'm sure David could share stories. I know I could share stories of women who have had profound, deep faith that impacted the lives of their family and kids. I have seen messed up, broken, screwed up marriages that because of the faith and the way that the woman lived in that marriage saved every single person in that household and saw restoration happen. St. Augustine, who is the saint back, um, he lived from 354 to 430 AD. He has written so much. And everyone in this room owes something to St. Augustine, even if you don't know it, because he has influenced much of Christian thought and also much of Western thought um, throughout the ages. He's written prolifically about many, many things. But St. Augustine was not always St. Augustine, if you get what I mean. He was a fornicator. He slept around like crazy. He wrote about it in a book called The Confessions, which you can read, um, which I would actually really encourage you to read. But he didn't know Jesus. But it was the prayers of his mother that one day caused Augustine to come to faith. But not just his mother, his father. His father, Patricius, did not know Jesus at all. But because of the way Augustine's mom lived, Patricius would one day come to faith. It's written about her. It's, she served her husband as her master, which is old way of talking, okay? And did all she could to win him for you, meaning Jesus. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. And finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. That beautiful, a life of self-sacrificial service empowered by the hope of the gospel. It's what helped them become followers of Jesus. So he says to submit graciously, and then he also says to pursue eternal beauty. Peter goes on to say that, that wives, shouldn't, they shouldn't just pursue external beauty. And at the time, um, you have to understand that like the reason for not the, the braided hair and all that stuff language isn't because Peter is saying that that is wrong. There's nothing really wrong with braiding your hair or doing all that stuff. He was saying to the wives, like, don't dress in a way that says that's dishonoring to your husband, like you're out looking, or that's gonna cause other men to be attracted to you. He's saying to stay respectful. It's kind of a carry-on of what he's already said. Um, you know that according to a Groupon study, women will spend an average of $250,000 in their lifetimes on beauty products. Men, we're not doing much better at 175,000. What are we buying? Um, I don't know. But I can't read these verses without also thinking of Moira on Schitt's Creek, right? Like she is like the prime example of vanity. She can't like, one episode, she screams because she can't find her alligator purse. And she says, all hope is lost. She puts her hope in external appearances and she's shallow. But what the, what the Bible here is encouraging is, isn't just saying that these things are wrong. Because again, it's not wrong to have jewelry or nice hair or put on makeup or anything like that. But what it's encouraging is to pursue 
godliness, pursue true beauty, a gentle and quiet spirit, he says. And if that sounds like he is pushing women down, let's not forget that our Savior, when he describes himself, he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart, right? Peter is saying to look like Jesus, to look like your Savior. He is reorienting around eternal things. And then finally, he says, to submit graciously, pursue inner eternal beauty. And then he says, don't fear. Don't fear. And I love it because it's like, he's like, men are stupid. They're not always easy to follow sometimes. And he says that this is the way women of old place their hope in God. Sarah was Abraham's wife. Abraham, he's one of the fathers of our faith, right? But he was kind of a knucklehead leader sometimes. He tried to lead his family, but sometimes he really just made a hash of it. He wasn't always good. He wasn't abusive or anything like that, but he sometimes didn't do it very well. And then theologian Karen Jobes says this, and I love this. She says, Sarah submits to the questionable wisdom of her husband in an unjust and frightening situation in a foreign land, hostile environment, which is exactly the kind of situation the church is in today as exiles. So Peter's calling women who are in, these unsafe, in a relationship with their unsafe husbands, hey, be respectful. Hey, submit to their leadership. They're leading their home. Try to be honoring as, as you obey me. Pursue eternal things, recognizing that your hope is in God and that we live in a world that's, that's fearful and we live in a hostile environment, this world. But still follow in that. We are exiles and the hope is in the gospel and in the God leading and watching over. The gospel empowers a life of self-sacrificial service. So that was for the wives. Now we move to the next point, for the husband. Manhood and masculinity conjure up all sorts of cultural images. Right now, maybe you think of like the people at the gym who are, who are jacked or people who, can, who are like super handy. Maybe you think of athletes like Tom Brady who have kind of given themselves to pursuing health. Um, maybe you think of like me, um, Ron Swanson in the Pyramid of Greatness, turning boys to men and men into Swansons. Um, it includes things like poi, sting like a bee, don't float like a butterfly, that's ridiculous, or crying, acceptable at funerals or the Grand Canyon. But the Scripture's prescription for husbands isn't bravado. It isn't commanding a home. It isn't being an autocrat. It's much more basic and it's much more beautiful than that. He says to live with understanding, knowledge. Look at verse seven. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. First, a clarification. What does Peter mean by weaker? What Peter means by weaker isn't that women are emotionally weaker, isn't that women are spiritually weaker. What he means is that generally speaking, dudes are stronger. That's all he means, okay? So um, with that, Peter's first instruction to men is to live in an understanding way. Some translations translate this, live according to knowledge. Peter here is saying to know your wife, to know who she is, 
to understand who she is, to seek to engage with her, to understand what makes her tick, to understand her likes or dislikes. And you see, the broader culture wants to paint a picture that there's really no difference at all between men and women. But, this, but the scriptures speak of differences. It acknowledged us. It speaks of differences and it speaks of equality. And what the Bible is calling for men is to know their wives and to know who they are. It's a reminder that man, if you're in a marriage or really if you're in any sort of relationship, it's not your kingdom. That that this universe doesn't really exist for you, that your marriage, it doesn't exist for you. Some men treat their marriages that way, that they're like the king of their castle, their little kingdom that they're supposed to rule over with an iron fist and control, manipulating it to make it accomplish what they want and for their benefit. But the scriptures paint a different picture of what true leadership and true manhood looks like, and that looks like a life of self-sacrificial service. It looks like knowing your wife. It looks like understanding who she is. And in spite of the differences, living patiently with her. Not because she's difficult or not because she's wrong, because you're different. Not demanding your own way. We serve by living patiently in spite of the differences. And then we follow Peter's words later in verse seven, which is the second point here. It says, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. We show honor. We serve sacrificially. We live patiently in understanding and we serve them with honor, show honor to them. And why? Why do we show honor? Well, because women are co-heirs of the grace of life. See, here's Peter elevating the status of women again. He's saying that women aren't inferior to us. He's saying that women are equal before the eyes of God. They're co-heirs with Christ. Sure, we have differences, but we are equal. So men, Honor your wives. You ever been around the water cooler at the office? Or maybe it's just a bunch of guys sitting around and you hear them complain about their spouses, right? Complain about their wives, or the wife at home, ba 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 ba, complain, complain, complain. So not honoring them. You engage with material on the internet, not honoring. If you flirt with that girl in the office, it's not honoring to them. Do you deride and say hurtful things to your wife sometimes? Not honoring them. Are you bully? Not honoring. You see, at the time of this writing, advice like this was unheard of in the ancient world. But Jesus desires that men show honor honor to their spouses, that men see them, that compliment them, that know who they are, that aren't controlling, but patient. Do you know what it's like to feel seen? Like to feel like someone gets you. You know, like maybe you're struggling with something and someone acknowledges that they struggle with that too. 
and all of a sudden you feel seen. Or maybe it's, you're just in pain and someone acknowledges that pain and sits with you in it and you feel seen. Well, brothers, like your wives should feel more seen by you than any other person because you live with them according to knowledge and you honor who they are. You see what they do. You see the way they sacrifice for you. The hope of the gospel empowers a life of self-sacrificial service. Uh, Theologian Scott McKnight has a friend who says it this way, and I think it's helpful. He says, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband, but I don't believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. In fact, I know when I am worthy of submission, my wife submits. And when I am unworthy of it, she does not. My responsibility as a husband is to be worthy. Brothers, your responsibility is to be worthy. So he reminds them to show honor. He reminds them to live in an understanding way. And then last thing, he kind of reminds them of their place. This section of the Bible ends with one of the scariest passages, I think, in all of Scripture. It says this to the men. He says, do all of this so that your prayers will not be hindered. There is a connection between your relational wholeness, your your relationship with your wife, and the way that you live with your wife. There is a connection between that, between that relationship and between God hearing you. That's what it's saying. And if that's weird and confusing and kind of scary, then good, because that means the text is doing exactly what it was meant to do. Peter is saying, guys, wake up. There's a way to behave in this relationship. There's a way to live in this relationship. And by you not doing that, you're basically saying that you're not living as a child of God and God is not gonna hear you when you talk to him. Because if you dropped your eyes down to verse um, 12, it says this, and we'll explore it more next week, but the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. If you're not living with your wife in an honoring way, if you're not showing honor, if you're manipulative and you're a bully, do not expect God to answer your prayers because his ears are open to the righteous, not to the bully, not to the manipulator. You can't expect God to answer your prayers if you're actively living in a way that is contrary to how he wants you to live. So if you've been maybe living in your marriage relationship and you've been kind of thinking, man, I've been guilty of some of the stuff that Don is talking about. I've not been fulfilling. The place to start is repentance. If you've been living in a marriage relationship and you realize that, man, I'm not honoring my husband the way I should, the place to start is repentance before God and before the other person. So we talked about the wives. We talked about the husbands. Well, now we're going to talk about everybody. Everyone. You see, it's really easy to look at a passage like this and think, oh, this is for married people. I'm not married. But I think what the text, I think this text is relevant to all of it because what Peter is doing is he's encouraging us to walk in wisdom in our relationship. Notice something. Peter's addressing a specific situation and he's making general guidelines. 
right? He's addressing specific people and he's making general guidelines. He's saying, hey, submit. Hey, honor your wife. Hey, live with understanding. He's not writing down exactly the formula for what they're supposed to do. And I think that's really interesting because Peter is kind of recognizing that the uniqueness of a relationship means that this is gonna look different, fleshed out in every relationship. But the goal of Christians is to walk in wisdom in the relationships that they have, asking how do I best honor God and serve the other in the relationship that I have? And he gives general principles. And if you're not married, These principles are worth pursuing in your life right now. It's worth pursuing honoring other people. It's worth self-sacrificial service to other people. It's worth speaking words of life instead of speaking words of death. It's worth trying to, if you're in a relationship with with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, like your worker or or something like that, like you work for a company that, and people that aren't Christians, it's worth thinking, man, how do I honor this person as a worker, right? These principles are are relevant. Second thing, I think what we see here is that God desires us to have relational wholeness. We are created in the image of God, which means that we are relational beings, as God is relational, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? In those That's a relationship of unity and harmony. Whereas the father loves the son by the spirit and the the son honors the father through the spirit as one of unity and harmony. God cares about the relationships we have. You don't have any disposable relationships, friends. In those horizontal relationships you have with other people, speak to the health of the vertical relationship you have with God. You see, for a long time, one of the things I heard growing up was that holiness, that following after God is evidenced by the things you didn't, didn't do. You didn't, you didn't drink beer, you didn't go to the movies, and you didn't play cards or whatever the, the list of do's and don'ts were. You didn't listen to this kind of music, you didn't watch this rated R movie, whatever it was. And listen, there is a place for personal holiness like that where we, where we follow God's commands and we don't sin, but more often in scriptures, holiness is related to wholeness in how we relate to other people. In that the proof of a life well lived, the proof of a holy life is a life that loves God and loves others. Maturity is seen in the relationships that people have and how you relate to others. Every relationship. Next, we see the work of the Spirit. So one of the things I noticed right away in this passage is that what we see here are the fruits of the Spirit being lived out in the marriage context. Fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we see all of these things. Peter is encouraging this husband and wife to live out. Right, He's encouraging a life of love. He's encouraging a life of patience. He's encouraging a life of gentleness. He's encouraging self-control. You are in all sorts of relationships. You, um, you're in relationship with your parents. You're in relationship with your spouse. You're in relationship with your coworker. You're in relationship um, with some of the people you're in acquaintances with. And some of those relationships are maybe stressed. But I think a good question to ask right now is, 
Where do I need to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit right now? Where do I need the Holy Spirit's help at this moment in my marriage? Where am I tempted to sin? Maybe it's the people in your group home that you're just having a hard time with. Where do I need the Holy Spirit's help? God wants these things for us. Where does the Lord need to do some work on you? Finally, see that all of this, all of this is for the mission of God in the world. Peter gave this advice to husbands and wives so that those who did not know him would one day would. Your relationships right now are part of that very same mission in how you live and engage and interact with other people says something about what you believe about the hope that you have. So, so friends, put your hope in God. Put your hope in what he's doing in the world and let that shape the way you relate to others, how you honor them and respect them because the hope of the gospel empowers a life of self-sacrificial service. As we approach communion, all of this points towards that glorious hope that we have. Jesus came and he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and he served us. He cared so much about the relationships that he was in that, that he was willing to be crucified, that he was willing to have friends betray him, that he was willing to do whatever it took so that you and I could know and feast on his love. So brothers and sisters, as we think about approaching the table, I wanna encourage you to meditate on the cross on what Jesus did for us, to remember that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and that joy was you and me. And so brothers and sisters, for the, for the joy of seeing others come to know Jesus, we live in godly ways in our relationships.